Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. I'd like to talk to you today about the attitude of a servant. Having a servant's heart, what does that mean? And again, let's just zoom out for a little. We've been talking so, so much this year about next steps, you know, practical things that we can do to share and express the love of God. We've been talking about rediscovering this gospel that we carry and sharing the love of Jesus Christ directly in personal ways, but also in practical ways. And this morning, the, 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 the angle I'd like to take is that of a servant. They say that your attitude determines your altitude. Now, if you, if you actually understand where that phrase comes from, it actually comes from a little gauge inside an airplane that looks a bit like this. Are you not ready for me? In an airplane, you, how much longer before you're ready for me? Two whole minutes. Goodness gracious. All right. And at, let me explain it to you this way. Here's the airplane. The attitude of an airplane describes its orientation in relation to the horizon. Okay? And so an attitude meter is a round gauge, and it's got a line across it horizontally. And as the plane banks, so that gauge will show the attitude of the airplane in relation to, there you go, in relation to the horizon. It will also show whether you are ascending, aiming your nose up, or aiming your nose down. So you will see here, there are two things that can be read. You can be read how you are banking, this way and that way, as well as this whole line will go down when you are pointing up, and it will go up when the nose of the aircraft is putting down. And that it, what, that's called an attitude meter. And it basically shows the trajectory in which you are, the, the way you are facing, the way the, the, the attitude of the airplane in relation to the horizon. Thank you, Siobhan. Thank you, Liam. Let me read to you the official explanation. The attitude indicator is one of six basic flight instruments found in any cockpit. At a glance, it gives the pilots a clear picture of the aircraft's relative position to the Earth's horizon. With one simple dial, the pilot can see whether the plane is climbing, banking, or descending. Now I want to say, concerning your and my attitude, this is also true of our spiritual growth and development in the kingdom of God, in the way that we treat people, in the way that we see the world around us. It is true that your attitude determines your altitude, how far you are going to go. You know, any businessman will tell you he will far rather have somebody who is perhaps... Uh, uh, not as qualified or not as experienced as, as, would, as would be desired but has a great attitude than somebody who has great qualifications and great experience but has a bad attitude. Somebody like that is like poison. They come in and they ruin the whole atmosphere. They ruin the whole attitude in the place where they are at. People with positive attitudes have a way of being optimistic. They see the best in their situation. They're the glass half full people. And they take delight in engaging with the world around them, with the people around them, in making things better. 
you will notice that negative people seldom engage. They're quick to criticize. They're happy to tell you all the things that are wrong, but they won't lift a finger to change the situation. They call it discernment. It is not. It's a bad attitude. People with a positive attitude have no problem getting their hands dirty, getting into the situation, and being the change that they want to see. When we talk about the kingdom of God, and we talk about a servant heart, Jesus said this, Matthew 23, 11 to 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest. In other words, the person who carries, what does this, this mean? I want you to understand, when the Bible talks about being great, it's not talking about status. It's not talking about having a, a, a big qualification. Doctor, bishop, apostle, so-and-so, the CEO, the FD. It's not talking about status or title. It is not talking about the size of your operation. When the Bible talks about greatness, it is talking about kingdom influence. Kingdom influence. That's why when Jesus talks about John the Baptist, he says he's one of the greatest people that has ever lived because he had a powerful kingdom influence of preparing the way for Jesus Christ himself. All right? And here Jesus says, the greatest one among you, in other words, the one who will carry the greatest kingdom influence will be the servant. Did you get that? We want to say, no, we need to elect Christians to governmental office so that we can force kingdom of God principles on the whole country. No, you see, Jesus never worked that way, did he? He worked through servanthood. And in so doing, undermined, overturned every single governmental structure that has ever existed. And his kingdom is still an ever-advancing kingdom to this day. The next verse says, whoever exalts himself, in other words, in the eyes of men, to be something to, to, to rule over people will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, if you try and force your opinion and your things on other people, God will have to push you down to say, no, 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 that's not how I work. But if you are willing to serve, God will say, I need to give this man more emphasis. I need to give this man or woman more, more of an eye, more influence, because they are able to do things with my heart in the right way to bring kingdom influence into this situation and into this world. Again, in Mark chapter 10, 45, Jesus said, even the Son of Man, in other words, God himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ will always be our example of life, of Christian life. To be a Christian means to be Christ-like. The guys didn't come up one day with this term and said, we are now going to call ourselves this. They were beginning, the people who were looking at those who were of the way is what the Christians were called in the beginning, in the early church, those who are of the way. Those who looked on them said, they are like Christ. They are little Christs. And the term Christian was birthed not from within the church, but, but from without it, because they resembled him. They looked like him. They worked like him. They served as he did. And the only way that your life or my life is ever going to glorify God is by taking on the same mantle. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, John seventeen four, I have glorified you on the earth, said Jesus. I have finished the work you have given me to do. By the way, this is before he went to the cross. What was his work? 
humble himself and to serve your needs and my needs. And ultimately to lay himself, lay down his life to be crucified for your sin and mine. Jesus had a unique role to play. And that unique role was shaped by three things. Number one, who he was. He was the Son of Man, born into this world for purpose. He knew that he was the Son of God before his ministry began, as he was being baptized by John the Baptist. God himself says, this is my Son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. So the three things that shaped his life, uh, and the unique role that Jesus had to play in this earth as a man, was number one, his identity. Number two, it was the setting he found himself in. He was born in a particular time in a particular region, among a, 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 political, a certain political climate, among certain people. So, his setting. And the third thing was the people that he encountered, the people that Jesus was sent to serve. These three aspects shaped the purpose and the outcome of Jesus' existence. He was the Son of God born into a certain environment to manifest himself and to receive the consequences of that manifestation in the time and the region in he was born from the people that he was sent to serve. Did you get that? Now, I want you to understand that these same three aspects define your life. You see, Jesus wasn't just fixated on the cross. That was the culmination of his life purpose, but there was more to his life than just that one moment. You and I, too, will discover our God-given purpose and our destiny as we consider, number one, who we are. The children of God, born again, most, born again of the Most High, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, sons and daughters of God Almighty, filled with His Spirit. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. Amen? We have been forgiven. We have been set free and liberated from the ways of this world that are limited, that are fixated primarily on self and number one. We have been brought out of the darkness and into the light. That is who we are. And we have been placed in a setting. And here we are in the year 2023 in Pinelands, born in a time where things seem very upside down and confused. Men don't know if they're men and women don't know if they're women. We don't know what is up or what is down. We don't know if we're left or if we're right. Confusion reigns. Everyone is angry. Everyone is upset. But yet we have been born into such a time as this. And among a people that we will encounter daily, a people that we are sent to serve. And as we begin to make peace with the fact that we were not born 30, 40, 50 years ago, or before we were, some of us were born 30, 40, 50. I think I might, in terms of my musical preferences, I was definitely born a generation too late. But you were born now. And where you are, the people that are around you, the family to which God has brought you into is not by accident. Now, they may be causing you strife. You may find... Some of you smiled at that one. Clearly, they are causing you strife. 
Maybe the job you're in, maybe the friends you've got, there's difficulties that you're facing. You are who you are, where you are, called to serve those around you with divine purpose. The thing that will unlock that purpose is your attitude and your willingness to serve where you are as a child of God. And your outcome is going to look different from Jesus. It's going to look different from mine because I was born in a different year, in a different family, in a different and a unique setting, and I work in a unique environment just as unique as yours. But as I begin to give myself to be, to manifest this new creation that Jesus Christ has made me to be, to and in the midst of the situation I am in, with a positive attitude that is willing to engage, to bring the kingdom in, to make a difference, I will begin to discover and to walk out the destiny that God has prepared for me. And you will discover your destiny just as Jesus did by doing exactly the same thing. Apart from Jesus, Scripture is awash with examples of people who discovered their purpose and and unlocked their destiny by serving the people they encountered in the setting they were in. One of the best examples for me is the life of Joseph. Study the life of Joseph. He grew up serving his father and his mother. Why was he the favorite? I bet you it's because he served willingly, with a positive attitude. He served his brothers, even though they didn't want to be served. He had to go and take them food out in the fields. He had to run after them. Eventually, they really didn't like him. They sold him off into slavery. He came into Potiphar's house. He manifested himself, his positive attitude, where he was to the people God had given him. And in Potiphar's house, he prospered. And things went really well for him for a little while. In fact, things went so well for him, he, gave, he, he even gained unwelcomed favor. And so where did he end up then? In the prison. And what did he do in the prison? He manifested himself with his positive attitude, serving those in the prison. He effectively was running the prison for the prison guard who was reading the Roman times every day and letting him, letting, letting him do all the work, and he was faithful, making a difference. Ultimately, we know he was promoted to the servant of Pharaoh. He ran the whole country, because whether he was at home, whether he was in the field, whether he was a slave, or whether he was free, whether he had power, or whether he did not, he was prepared in every situation to manifest an attitude of servanthood to those around him that produced mighty, mighty kingdom influence. You see, what we forget is this, church. I love how God works. In the midst of a drought, He brings this family of promise into Israel, uh, into Egypt, where there is plenty. He gives them favor, and they multiply. They became uh, a, a mighty and a huge nation. After a little while, the Egyptians became jealous of them and then persecuted them. And we know that they went into slavery. And so the entire world, because of what Joseph did, came to buy grain. You remember, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And in those seven years of famine, everybody from all over the region came. And they came with their gold, and they came with their silver, and they gave it, and they put it into Egypt so that they could go home with grain. And all those years later, when when, when the people of Israel left Egypt, what did they give them? 
the gold, the silver, just to get out of here. And God was providing for His people in their slavery. And long, and when they were still a small family, God began providing for the needs that the entire nation would have down the line. Through a man who was just willing to be a servant. This is powerful stuff, church. We don't understand the power of what a servant life can do. The, purpose, the principle of serving those around us travels with us into the New Testament and actually becomes a means through which God desires to bring kingdom, His kingdom to bear here in this world. And here's just one example that Jesus gave. Uh, Matthew 5, 41. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Let me explain this scripture to you. You've got to remember that Israel at that time was under Roman occupation. Rome ruled. Caesar was supreme in the land. And in his Bible commentary, David Guzik says it this way. I want to read it because it's just succinct, and he says it well. Positively, we are told to take command of evil impositions. We are told to take command of evil impositions. In other words, Rome was coming with power and force to dominate these people, and they could command them to carry, a soldier could command an Israelite to carry his his bag, his, his baggage for a mile. It says... We are told to take command of evil impositions by making a deliberate choice to give more than we, we are required. At that time, Judea was under Roman military occupation. Under military law, any Roman soldier might command a Jew to carry his soldier's pack for one mile, but only one mile. Jesus says, go beyond the one mile required by law and give another mile out of free choice of love. This is how we transform and attempt to manipulate us into a free act of love. Isn't that powerful? I am going to face and take mistreatment, and I'm going to give back what is not deserved. Why on earth would I do that? Because my Lord and Savior, on my behalf and for my sin, suffered unfair treatment and gave only love and grace in return. If I want to be like Him, I've got to do what He did I've got to be willing to endure harsh and unfair treatment while maintaining the positive attitude of a servant. You know, it's very interesting. When I said the things about what Jesus did is he manifested himself in the situation. And I said when we manifest ourselves, we cannot excuse or blame other people for our behavior because of their actions. The Bible in Jesus, in the New Testament, never calls us to treat people according to what they deserve. Because had Jesus done that, none of us would be sitting here today. We are not called to treat people according to who they are. We are called to love them in spite of who they are. We are called to treat them according to who we are. Forgiven. You know, this is why as Paul did this morning, we come to the communion table to remember. To remember. To do this in remembrance of what was done for us. Why do we need to remember? Because, folks, we are going to be positioning ourselves into a place where the same is going to be done to us. And if we forget, we are not going to respond in the right spirit. There is a kind of person that God chooses to work through. There are others that God cannot work through. The one that God chooses to work through is the one that is willing to serve. 
that is willing to put the needs of others before their own. A heart that serves the needs of others is a heart that has the capacity to bring the influence of God's kingdom into this world. And there's a story that I love that, I, I, for me, encapsulates what this heart looks like. It's a story in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. I want to read it for you fairly quickly because I don't want to linger on it too long, but I love the heart of this young lady when I see it in the Scripture here because she exemplifies to me the attitude that we need to carry in servanthood. Folks, listen, servanthood can be forced on you. Servanthood can be demanded from you. If you have a boss, you are expected to serve and you are remunerated for your service. And you ought to be held accountable for that. Do you agree? Those who are bosses are saying yes. Those who are not saying, ah. You agree to serve a company and to be paid by that company for your service, right? In other words, you have to be accountable. You could do that with a bad attitude, though, can't you? Let's read this story. Genesis 24. Um, the narrative is this. Abraham wants a wife for his son. And so he sends his servant and he says, don't take from any other nation. Go back to where we come from. Go and get somebody from our people. That's all I'm asking of you. And so here we see the servant praying. Genesis 24 from verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. He was clearly a faithful servant. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down in, outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success in this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels to drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I know that you, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful, and to behold, a virgin, no man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. She called him, My lord. In other words, she's positioning herself as a servant. That's what she's doing through that statement. Then she qu quickly, say quickly, quickly, let out her pitcher. You didn't have to say it quickly. You just could say quickly. <laughs> she let her pitcher down in her hand, gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, in other words, her own volition, I will draw water for your camels also until... Until they have finished drinking. Any of you understand how much a camel can drink? In other words, I'm not just going to give them some water and move on with my... I'm going to feed, drink them. I'm going to water them until they are finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her picture into the trough and then ran back. Listen, men. To have somebody who is this enthusiastic about serving, any businessman, any boss would be... Wow. 
She's not just getting, she's not just, another picture. Listen, let's be honest. How many of you have been served by that cashier? (laughs) Morning. No one likes that cashier, right? But what about the cashier? Morning, and he's getting things done, and getting things done, and getting you through. Why? Because there's people waiting. And she's not putting her comfort or the way she feels. All right, let me get back into the scripture before I say something I shouldn't. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent as to know whether the Lord had made his journey uh, prosperous or not. There was something that God saw in this woman. There was something that the servant was looking for. And what was it? It was this heart, this attribute that she, to me, just so beautifully espouses. Of her own volition, she served this man. She got underneath his... She had no idea what was coming. She didn't know what he was looking for. There was no hidden agenda that she had here. She wasn't expecting some kind of promotion from this man or that he would give her, you know, a tip. She just simply served him. And she did so enthusiastically. Can you say enthusiastically? Can you say enthusiastically, enthusiastically? (laughs) She ran. She didn't have to, but she did. Did you get that? She didn't have to, but she did. Do you know how many times I sit in marriage counseling? And sometimes it's the husband and sometimes it's the wife who says, I shouldn't have to tell them. In other words, I want them to do this thing for me without having to be told. I know if my wife asks me to do the dishes... Look, I never enjoy doing the dishes. This is why this example comes up so often in my messages. Some people hate doing certain things. Some people hate ironing. I don't like washing dishes. I do it sometimes. When I do it of my own volition without having to be asked, there's joy in it. When I'm asked to do it, I have to find the joy. And by the grace of God, we can do that. Amen? Servanthood is an attitude that attributes value and worth to others. When she came and she said to this man, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to treat you as somebody that's really important. Let me give you another example of what this might look like. And you may not think this is servanthood, but as soon as you get under somebody to serve them, even to thank them for what they are doing, you are attributing value to them and to what they have done. Have any of you ever noticed when you're walking through the shopping center, when you're walking through the mall, and you have that lady who's cleaning the floors? Have you noticed that nine times out of ten, all they do is look down? And I want to tell you that's not because they're focusing on the floor that they're cleaning. It's because the job that they're doing is a thankless job. They are invisible. They're invisible. Nobody sees them. Nobody says thank you. Everyone just walks past them. On the wet floor, they just cleaned. I mean, can you imagine the frustration? Have you ever stopped and touched them, put your hand on their shoulder and say, thank you, that looks great, appreciate that. And just made eye contact with somebody to say, you're doing a good job. Ascribing some value to what is a menial task that we take for granted. 
Maybe next time the garbage truck comes out your house, you can hear it coming. Just go outside and wave at the guys in your gown and say, thanks, guys. You don't do that because you know you're going to be asked for something. You can say no. But just give them a thumbs up. The menial task of that street sweeper. There's something in us that was full up the bag. Right? You want to tell them how to do their job instead of just saying, that bag is not as full as I would make it, but you know what? I didn't have to fill it. You know why? Because you are doing that job. And maybe it's time you just stop and you say thank you. Maybe you carve out a little bit of time, grab your spade and go help them. I don't know. What I want to say to you is this. Every one of us has capacity to serve in this way if we are willing to simply get over ourselves. Our own pride, our own reputations, our own sense of importance. I want to say to you, you don't have to have a title or a position to serve. In fact, truth be told, having those often makes serving more difficult. It's much easier to serve when nobody knows who you are. You don't need money to serve. You don't need to be eloquent to serve. But there are some things that you do need in order to serve well and in a way that glorifies Jesus. And I want to give you five. You all with me still? The first thing that you need to serve well, and write these down, send yourself an email, think about them this week. You've got five days this week before Saturday. I'll give you Saturday off. Every other day you've got something to think about. Number one, if you want to serve well, the first thing you're going to need is sincere love, sincere care. Service is the language of love. True love is not demonstrated in nice words. True love is demonstrated in sacrifice. John 5, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What does that look like? To lay down your life did I give you the wrong reference? Okay. It's not that verse. It's not John 5.13. But the Bible says, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. I promise you it's in there. What does it mean to lay down my life for my friends? It means to put his needs before my own and to help him to lay, Jesus laid down his life for you and for me to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Amen. Servanthood without sincere care for the one you are serving will always be self-serving. I want to say that to you again. Serving someone without a sincere care for their well-being or what they are doing will always be self-serving. In other words, you're doing it for yourself. Maybe you're doing it to feel good about yourself. Maybe you're doing it for reward. But if your object of serving is not to sincerely bless and help somebody, what is your real motive? You drill down on that and you're going to see selfishness there. You're going to see pride there. Maybe you want to be seen. Maybe there's something you want to get out of this. Maybe you're trying to curry favor. Sincere love doesn't think that way and it doesn't work that way. I mean, what would this look like in a marriage? Ephesians 5, 25, this one's right. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that mean? 
He's living to serve her needs. A couple of verses before that, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In other words, wives, put your husband's needs before your own. Husband, put your wife's needs before your own. It's simple. We've completely confused and confuddled this whole submission thing in marriage. Put your spouse's needs, their calling, their destiny from God, their well-being before your own and serve them. What would this look like in your workplace? You know, if you're not serving your boss or your company to help them succeed, you're serving yourself. Why does that company exist? To make a profit, to meet a need, whatever it may be. That's your business. If it's about your paycheck, if it's about your career, if it's about your promotion, if it's about your reputation in the workplace, folks, you're not serving somebody else. Don't kid yourself. You're serving yourself. You're serving your own interests. You're serving what's good for you, for your financial well-being, for your little posse, your little family. Are those things not important? Of course they're important. Of course they're important to God. Of course we should be rewarded for our skills. Of course we should be rewarded for the service and the time we give. Of course. But my motive in serving this person or this boss or this manager or these people or this team, whether I'm serving as a leader or whether I'm serving as a team member, is for their benefit, for the benefit of the company. And I need to put that first. That will give me the attitude that I need. My question to you is, to what degree are you willing to lay down your career, your promotion, your reputation to bless and serve somebody else's agenda? To what degree are you willing to get out of the way so that somebody else can be noticed and get the promotion? Difficult questions. Colossians 3.22 says this, Servants, by the way, if you're an employee, you're a servant. Servants, in everything, obey those who are your masters on earth, not only with external service as, to, as those who merely please people, but with sincerity of heart because, you, because of your fear for the Lord. That's the attitude we should have. Amen? What would this look like in our church environment? It means that I don't just come to church and sit down and expect to be served as if this is a, uh, a restaurant. Craig, there's a gentleman out, outside. Could I ask you to just have a look, please? I don't just come to be waited upon. You know, if this was a spiritual restaurant, you could come to me after... Uh, sorry, pastor, I don't really like the way you've prepared this meal. I want to return and send it back to the kitchen. We don't just come and sit down. No. Uh, actually... One of the primary reasons we hear is to learn how to serve. To serve the Lord and to serve one another. I must be honest with you, I don't want to see any member of this church coming into this building, any member of this spiritual family coming into this building and just sitting down as if you're here to be served, as if you are a dignitary. That's not who, what we are here for. I want you to engage in the life of this spiritual family. Get up and invite somebody to a cup of coffee and have a conversation with them. Serve where you can. Find out if there's anything that you can do to help the one you're speaking to and having coffee with. Get their phone number. Pray for them. Give them a call. Get engaged. That's the attitude of a servant. Amen? When you walk into the premises and there's a paper that's blown in or that's lying around, pick it up. 
See, the window is dirty. Don't come tell me how dirty the window is. Clean it. You see, when, when, we, when I just come in and sit down and I cross my arms, I'm not going to engage. That's not the attitude of a servant. Amen? Folks, the books of Malachi and the book of Haggai were written to those specifically who decided to put their needs before the needs of the kingdom of God. That's what the entire book is about. Go read them. Maybe you'll be shocked. Are you still okay? I realize I'm going on a little bit longer than usual today, but I want to finish this. So the first thing that we require, this is the longest one, so don't be afraid. If we want to serve the right way, is we need to have genuine love and sincere care for the people we are serving. And maybe you don't have that right now. I want to tell you, you begin praying for them, you will develop a sincere love and sincere care. Simply, what are they trying to accomplish? How can I help them do it? That's how you start. You don't have to like them, by the way. Amen? What would this look like in your school, in your university, in your friendship group, in your family situation, in your community? What this requires from you and I, however, is the second attribute that we require to serve as Jesus would have us serve, and that is humility. Humility. Philippians 2, verse 3 to 4 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If they have a degree, if they have a lot of money or drive a nice car, if they have status or title or they can do something for me, no. Just simply, others, treat them as more important than yourself. In other words, their needs take precedence over mine. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests. So it doesn't say don't look out for your own interests. It says just don't be so self-absorbed, but also for the interests of others. You see, servanthood, if done sincerely and without seeking credit or glory, because we like to find that too, is one of the greatest antidotes to pride. We like to be well thought of, don't we? We like to be well thought of, don't we? We don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing and upset anybody because we want people to like us. And in so doing, that very pride will stop us from serving people and laying our lives down for them in many, many settings. Not all, but many. We need humility. Paul goes on in that same passage of Scripture to say this, let this, be, this, this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Who? Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, did not consider his status as God as something to be held onto and used. But he stripped himself of that status and, who being in the form of God, oh, sorry, uh, made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So he humbled himself to mere manhood status. And being in the appearance of man, he again humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even to the point of death on the cross. You know, if any of you have come to visit me, you'll know that this first portion of this verse, of a portion of Scripture is emblazoned on the wall of my office. It's one of the, my favorite verses in Scripture. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. And I put it in my office, not because I think I've got it made in any sense, but because I need such regular reminding of it. 
You're not something special. Are you willing to serve? Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to make the sacrifice with joy in your heart, not begrudgingly? Are you willing to lay it all down to serve the needs of this spiritual family, of your family, of your workplace, with the mind and heart of Jesus Christ? This is what he calls us to. And this brings us into our third point, and that is willingness. You cannot effectively serve God in a way that glorifies him with, as, a, as a begrudging obligation. You, cannot in, you can't enthusiastically serve someone who you resent or you are envious of or you are jealous of. If you, are, if you are resentful of your boss or the way you're being treated, you're going to have to sort that out because that resentment will prevent you from serving him in the way that Jesus would have you serve him or her. If there's unforgiveness in your heart, you'd better sort that out because God is calling you to serve that very person. If God calls you to love your enemies, he includes in that your family members. Forgiveness, mercy, and grace must be allowed to work in you and through you. And we need to remember that God deeply loves those who don't deserve it. You and I are proof of that. Amen? He was willing to lay down His life to serve them, to serve you and I in our sin. He calls us to do the same willingly. The Bible says that for the joy that was set before Him... He endured the cross, despised the shame, but He endured the cross for the joy of what He would accomplish through it. The fourth thing we're going to need is generosity. Generosity. Folks, let's not beat around the bush. Serving others is going to cost you. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you your money. It's going to cost you your comfort, your preferences, but we are on a mission, church. We are not on a holiday. This is what it's about. It's going to cost you your own goals and your agendas. There's a cost to serving others. And we need to be generous in the cost. You see, whenever I give anything, let's just talk about money. If I'm going to give money, whether it's one rand, a thousand rand, ten thousand rand, it's costing me something, right? Right? But the degree of the cost determines my degree of generosity. Are we willing to serve people generously with our time, generously with our resources, because we are on a mission to be Christ to them, in a sense? And finally, to truly serve the way God would have us serve, we are going to have to have a missional mindset. A missional mindset. As I've just said, we are not on a holiday. The Christian life is not club med. It's not a vacation club. The Christian life is a call to service. It's the only organization in the world that exists entirely for the sake of its non-members. Colossians 3, 23 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Why? Because He is my Master. He has commissioned me. He has commissioned you. And so everything I do, I do it not as unto men who can reward me or give me something, but I do it as an act of worship unto Him, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord 
Christ. Can we have that picture up again, please, Siobhan? Here's my question to you today. What is your attitude as you are going through life? Are you looking for areas to serve, to be a blessing in the place and to the people that God has, placed, has given you? Are you looking for their needs? Are you looking for what you can do to bless them? Willingly, generously, to speak words of encouragement? Or are you just keeping your head down? Just trying to get your job done? Concerned predominantly with yourself? May God deliver us from feeling sorry for ourselves, folks. I don't care how much you have, you can feel sorry for yourself. I don't care how little you have, you can sit and feel sorry for yourself, that you don't have this, that you could have had that, this opportunity is not there for you, this situation, oh, my past, this, which means I can't now, hogwash. That mindset needs to break because this is not about promotion. This is about serving the interests of our Savior and bringing the influence of His kingdom into our situation simply by seeing those around us working with a positive attitude that makes a difference and putting the needs of others before our own. It's simple, folks. And it's amazing how when we begin to do that simple thing, how God begins to work in the midst of the situation. When we set out to serve in a way that glorifies Him, He takes that service and does supernatural things with it. Amen? Would you stand with me? We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.